Welcome back to the Origination Podcast, where we speak to the top salespeople in the multifamily industry to try to understand what separates the top performers from the rest of the pack. On this episode, I'll be speaking with Chase Johnson, Managing Director at Cushman Wakefield and Greystone. We know sales is not easy, but is it always complicated? Chase learned very early in his life that sometimes it's just as simple as listening to the customer, listening to what they want, and then delivering that and doing what you say. This is just one piece of so many great nuggets of advice that you'll hear on this episode. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, let's speak with Chase. Chase Johnson, it's a delight to have you on the Origination Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Mordecai. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Chase, you know, we, we got to spend some time you know, around the, the holidays in New York. Any kind of memorable impressions that you had from, you know, be, being around town during the holiday season this, this year? Anything surprising yeah. to you? No, it was great. It was exactly how New York should be, in, you know, during Christmas time. You know, we got to walk around and I think we went to, you know, me and my analysts, we went to Rockefeller Center and took a selfie in front of the, in front of the tree. And it was, uh, it was a, a definitely a, a good, fun experience. And um, it was awesome coming up to see Greystone and, you know, meet everyone. So it was a great time. You, you came out exactly the right time because... Everyone's in a good mood, you know, Thanksgiving, when you have the holidays, then about, well, exactly January 2nd, straight through March 1st, everyone goes into a state of depression as it's just cold and, you know, not so much fun. It is like I was telling someone earlier, you know, I'm here in Austin, Texas, and, and, you know, I was telling someone earlier, it's like, you know, the cold weather is great up until December 25th, and then I'm, I'm, I'd want to be done with it. Yeah. Um, you know, after the holidays, I'm not much of a cold. Yeah. Enthusiast. All right. Well, Chase, why don't we start out, you know, with the, the question that, that I usually start with, which is, you know, if you think about earliest sales experience, you know, that you had the first memory of selling something, and that could be when you were, you know, little, it could be high school, college, after college, but you know, anything could come to mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my first sales experience probably working in, um, in Baybrook Mall in, in South Houston area. And so, you know, whenever I was 16 years old, my mom was, uh, my parents were um, nice enough to give me a vehicle to, uh, to drive around in. So I was super excited about that. But they were saying, hey, look, you've got to pay for your, your gas. And so you got to go find a job. I went to the mall and I, I found this place that was a kiosk in the mall. It's funny, they, they did, it was called Invisible Shield. They did iPhone screen repair. No, they didn't do iPhone screen repair. They did like screen protectors. So like it would be, you know, just a screen protector that goes on your phone. And, um, and, and so, you know, I saw the guy sitting there. I was like, man, that looks like kind of like a easy job. You know, you just put screen protectors on people's uh, phones and you sit in the middle of the mall and people watch. And so I went up to him and, and he got the job. And, um, you know, did my little training or whatever on how to apply the, you know, screen protector. And, and it was you know, not too difficult. And then, um, you know, as I was working there, uh, people would come up to me and they would say, hey, you know, can you fix my phone screen? And so I was saying, hey, no, we, we, we can't do that. We just put the screen protectors on the phone so that it, your phone doesn't crack. 
when you drop it next time. So you're going to have to go to Apple and, you know, get the screen repaired and then bring it back to me and I'll put the screen protector on. And so after about like 10, 15, 20 times of, of people coming up to me and asking me the same question, they were, you know, I guess the marketing of that, you know, kiosk was a little off. You know, people were thinking, hey, you know, you can repair phone screens. And so, you know, I kept saying no. And then one day my phone, I dropped my phone on the ground and it, and I, I don't know if I had an invisible shield on it or not, but, um, but the screen did crack. And, and so I went on YouTube and I learned how to, you know, repair the phone screen. You buy like a, the glass online and it comes to your house and there's this little screwdriver and little screws or whatever, but it was real easy back in the day. It was with the, I, I remember vividly, it was like the iPhone 3Gs were out. They had a black back and the curve. It was like the coolest thing. And so the thing you did, it, you know, it was the easiest thing. All you did was two screws at the bottom and then you get a little suction cup and it brings it up. And there's like three little thing, you know, electronic components that connect to the main motherboard or whatever. And I had no electronics background back then, but I was too broke to go to Apple and pay. I was like, I can save 50 bucks if I just buy this screen online and do it myself. So I did it successfully on my own phone and I was, in, you know, going back into work and someone asked me, Hey, can you do, you know, my screen got cracked Can you repair it? And I'm like, yeah, we can repair it. And, yeah. so, and so that's kind of the first, you know, time where I felt like, you know, at least from an entrepreneurial type of perspective that, you know, man, I can really make money selling something. And that, you know, there is an, an identified need and um, I'm, I think I'm able to fill it. And so I went on and you could go, you know, whatever website and order the screens. I ordered like two or three screens, sold out of those really quickly. And then did that a couple of times from kind of the retail perspective. And then I decided, you know, these screens are like 40 bucks. I'm selling them for a hundred dollars. So I'm making like $60 profit on each screen. That was really good money. But I went to this thing, I guess Alibaba was really early on at that point in time. And I went to Alibaba and I ordered like the minimum order if you wanted to order from like the manufacturing track was like, I don't know, like a hundred screens. And so I was like, maybe I'm not going to, go on the hundred, but I talked to him on the web, on the website and I was like, just send me 25. And so I got 25, like I started getting maybe bulk orders and I got the price down to like, I think five or 10 bucks a screen. Wow. Selling them for a hundred dollars. I thought I was just like a genius. And so, you know, that's, that's really the first memorable experience of, of selling that I've had, you know, at kind of the age of about 16 years old. That that's awesome. It, it makes me feel nauseous for all of the hundred dollar fees I paid for to fix screens oh, yeah. for, you know, my phone or my kids, like, you know, iPads and phones. It's, I mean, it's, it's amazing what they charge for. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you don't know, yeah, it's kind of like a black box. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm intimidated. I'm scared. I can't, you know, do this on my own and um, I need a professional to, to do it or someone with guts that has done it before. So that's an awesome sales story. It's also interesting that that what you were doing was just listening. Right? You're you're sell, you're you're there selling these screen protectors. You're selling some of those, right? But you're hearing this recurring need for 
you know, actually, what I really want is is uh, if you could help me fix my broken screen because that's this urgent thing that I have. Can you help me with with that? Right? And then and and all you did was you responded to. Well, first of all, you just you listened to the customer and you heard what they had to to say, right? And then you responded and said, all right, well, maybe there's something I can do to to fix that 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 problem. I feel like in you know in the in our industry, let's say in multifamily finance, it's probably not uncommon for people to just say like, well, let's say I sell Fannie Mae loans. It's like, all right, well, do you want a Fannie Mae loan? No, I don't want a Fannie Mae loan. What I really would like is X. It's like, oh, sorry, we don't we don't do that, right? So you you can have that approach, or you can say, well, after you hear enough times that there's a particular need for something else, you can try to find a source for that. I wonder um, if that brings up anything for you as far as your approach yet yeah, in your current role yeah, in capital markets and you know in commercial real estate the role of listening yeah, any examples that come to mind about kind of like just really like listening and trying to understand a yeah, need that, that, that led to, to new direction yeah absolutely I mean I think that you know just recently you know we've seen kind of you know obviously a bunch of volatility in in the in the financial markets whether it's on the debt side, or the equity side over the last, you know, I don't know, five plus years, the um, the equity, JV equity was easy to come by, right? So if you were a sponsor that had a few good full cycle deals under your belt, you had no problem raising your LP equity. And whether that was from friends and family or whether it was from an institutional type of investor, you really didn't have trouble as long as you were a good, good operator, right? And, and, you know, obviously those people that struggled in the equity space back then were probably someone with a little greener, maybe it's their first or second project, whatever it is, you know, those type of assignments were, were prevalent back then. But now today, you can see that the LP equity markets have, you know, really, really tightened up. And we've seen, you know, a lot of those types of requests come through from strong operators, right? So you've got, you know, operators that have been in business for 20 plus years that have gone full cycle on dozens and dozens, if not more projects. And they're, you know, coming to us now saying, Hey, I need equity interruptions. My guys are on the sidelines their pencils down. And, um, and that's something that, you know, it's not easy to go find in this market, you know, LP equity money. There's not, nothing worth anything of substantial amount is easy. And so we understand that. But there is a shift in that need, it seems like recently, in, you know, JV equity introductions. And so we've kind of, on a selective basis, taken those assignments on with strong sponsors. And what we're seeing is that, you know, this gets you in the door with an operator, uh, a, a developer or whoever, that otherwise would have not really had a need for you in a really shiny market. And so that is a leader into capturing their debt business as well. So if we're doing the equity, we want to do the debt and that's an easy you know, trade there. And, and so it really does open the conversation up. If you can kind of widen your approach from, you know, hey, this is this is the only product that I sell. Um, and, and if you can kind of widen that out and say, hey, what, what do people need right now? And really dial it in and go find that. Yeah, and, and that requires con conversation. I mean, it's probably easy in, let's say, a market that's very slow to say, all right, I'm not going to pick up the phone because I have nothing to really offer in this market. But 
is you need to stay in conversation in order to keep your ears open to the new needs that are emerging. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, you know, data driven. And so, you know, those conversations that we're having, whether it's with a lender or with an equity provider, you know, we keep it very simple on the data collection side, but we are collecting data on what their programs look like, you know, from, you know, where they play in the stack. Are you a first mortgage lender? Are you preferred equity only? Are you JV equity? You know, are you willing to co-GP? with a green sponsor. I mean, you know, all those types of things we're, we're kind of tracking as we're having conversations with lenders as well. And, you know, for us, if we do our work on the front end, as we're having these conversations, it's easy whenever the borrower or sponsor comes to us because we can just go to our database that we've got, you know, always updating our database and, and say, hey, look, this is the need. And we can kind of filter out who we've talked to recently that, you know, might want to offer that product. So, That's great. You know, you, you've mentioned to me in the past, you, know, you talked about being data-driven and just asking the right questions and sharing information. We've talked in the past about your approach with prospects and, and clients and banks as well, about how everyone wants to know what's going on in the market. Just use sharing your knowledge and the data that you're gathering you know, to just add value to you know, others that you're talking to and to build, build those relationships. When you think about it, you know, during the time that, you know, I guess quarter three, quarter four of 2022, we've got turbulence. We've got people that are either, you know, a lot of people are pencils down, ear to the ground, trying to figure out what's going on. You know, I am too. And so both on the borrower side and on the lender side, or let's say on the equity side and the sponsor side, whatever you want to say, you know, it's funny. I, was, I maybe said the joke to you at dinner. It's like, we had, we were talking to the borrowers, they were asking where the rates were, and then we were talking to the lenders, and they were asking where the rates were. Yeah. So it's like, no one really knew, you know, in, in these kind of volatile times, everyone's trying to gather information. And what I've always kind of made a cornerstone of my kind of business philosophy is that I want to be transparent with everybody. You know, I'm going to tell you how it is. And, you know, no matter what, if it's the, you know, and I'm going to try to say you know, the best way possible, but in, in, and I think that lenders really like that as we're going out to market in a competitive process where we say, hey, look, we've got these three or four quotes on the table, and this is the best one that we're leaning towards. And if you can get there, definitely, we'd love to throw your name into the ring. But if you can't, I don't want to waste your time in, you know, kind of being very transparent on not only kind of market intelligence on a general level, but also on a deal specific level. And I think that really provides value directly to the sponsor or the borrower in that case, where you're saying you're, you really are truly creating a market and you're not, you know, you're, you're creating transparency with the lenders really compete for that opportunity. So to your point about the borrowers want to know where rates are and the lenders want to know where rates are, the interesting thing is that as you're having conversations with both sides, you can answer that question for both both sides, right? You can you can you're accumulating those conversation points, and in this market where there is no there isn't a lot of transparency, not for any ill intent, but just because things are moving so quickly and it's hard to know what, what what's going on, just again being in those conversations talking to people, asking questions, and listening now gives you more information that you can have in that next conversation. Exactly. It compounds on each other, for sure. 
and you're able to kind of pick up pieces from one conversation to another and formulate your own opinion about where the market is at. Going back to your, let's say, sales history, any particular sales role models that you've had in your career that you look to as like, wow, like you saw someone who just, uh, you know, a ring of light around them when you saw them cl closing deals and any of your jobs that just really inspired you or taught you in, in this industry? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, what, whether I would call it a sales role, mo role model, model or not, um, you know, one person that comes to mind for me is is uh, my boss for the last eight years. So I was at, uh, just a little background on me, I started out with a company called Texas Realty Capital. We were a small boutique commercial mortgage banking platform that originated like life insurance company loans for about 20 different life companies. We um, originated and serviced those loans. We sold, you know, the owners of that company was John Moran and Jim Williams. And they were local Austin guys, they've been here forever. And then they ended up selling the, you know, their business to Northmark in April 2019. And then subsequently in, in September of, I guess, 2022, I moved over to Greystone in, uh, in Cushman Wakefield. And so, you know, John Moran really was my mentor as I got out of school. Um, and, and, you know, the, whether I would say that he was my sales role model or not, I don't know, but I would say that, you know, he's definitely my, my, commercial real estate finance and, and also character model. And I think that that goes a long way when you're, you know, whatever, uh, Tony Robinson or whatever, or whoever, you know, these large kind of faces in the industry, you know, they, they have, there's, there's, you know, kind of that hoorah type of um, mentality. And then there's also this kind of, Hey, be good to, you know, people and, and good will follow and if you consistently be good and be transparent with borrowers and lenders, and if you do the right thing, even when it might be hard to do the right thing, then everything's going to work out. And so that's really kind of the main thing that he taught me. And, and, and I think it does go into sales, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's maybe a little different than picking up the phone and, and you know, not, not stop calling until you hear a yes or something like that. But I think in our industry, that's not really the way that it works. I mean, you you can't force some, you know these types of products that we're selling have longer you know close cycles. They've got longer sign up cycles. They've got you know it's a it's a long game. And so you know I think as long as you are doing the right thing for you know your customers, whether they're a borrower or a lender, um, then then you're going to be all right. Yeah. Do you remember in maybe in some of your early meetings with John, yeah, anything that you learned from how he presented to clients or from pitches, like anything, you know, that, that stands out as far as yeah, his, his approach? You know, I think being curious about the math of it, like mm -hmm. being curious of how, how does, how does debt, you know, we all, we have debt yield as a measure. Well, why do we measure debt? Yield? You know, what, why do we, you know, measure debt service coverage? Well, you know, really kind of getting into the fundamental details and maybe coming up with, you know, and I think also explaining something that might be a little more complex to the to the layman and, and explaining that in a simple form um, really is, is I think, the way to kind of that you know that you've maybe mastered your craft is being able to kind of explain something that was maybe difficult 
you know, to, to kind of grasp maybe on your front end and explain it to someone in a very sim simple way that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but keeping, keeping it simple. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my father, he likes to say that if, if you can't explain it to a third or fourth grader, then you probably don't understand it. Right. Exactly. And so I think that that goes a long way. Just over the last 18 months, 24 months, we've had kind of two ends of the bell curve in terms of the market activity, right? You've had just a time where we've never seen more sales and, and rates were at record lows. Capital was available from, you know, all corners. Then we have today where rates have increased substantially. The market has grinded to, to a halt, very different environment. I'm curious, you know, I mean, you, you've had lots of different clients. Yeah, you probably learn about your clients in good times and in, in bad times. Yeah, any kind of insight that you've had about, you know, what makes for a good client or what kind of clients maybe you would want to avoid in, you know, in the future, you know, based on, you know, your, what you've seen in good times and now in, in, in challenging times, like insights about what you know, the client profile, you know, what it could be their character, their mindset, their, their or any, anything else? I can give you two examples of maybe one kind of, and, and this is maybe uh, more of a COVID example than a, but it, it still kind of goes into the theme. We we booked, I don't know, $250 million worth of commercial mortgages with a few different life insurance companies with a, with a client of ours that um, owns enclosed malls around the country. So some of the hardest product type to finance, some of the most discouraged kind of you know, product type in the market. We successfully found, found the right lender and partner for them, and then COVID hit. So we loaded them up with a bunch of a, a bunch of long-term fixed-rate money, and and COVID hit. And you know, I was shaking in my boots. I'm like, oh my god, because we had, you know, guys that were owning whether they were office buildings or it was less on the multifamily side, but it was mainly office and retail that was kind of you know. We were getting calls off, you know, back to back. Hey, I need relief. I need help. I need, you know, flip me the interest only, or I just need to defer my payments because my tenants aren't paying rent. My centers aren't open. You do really understand a character in a bad time. And, and that client called me up in the thick of it. Every single one of his malls were, were forced to be closed in the middle of COVID by the municipalities because of, because of COVID. And, and he called me up and he said, hey, Chase, I just want, wanted to let you know if you could relay the message to the lenders that we you know did deals with, I want you to let them know I'm intentionally not going to request a dollar of relief. I'm going to pay my 15-year AMs as you know, my super quick amortizing loans that we originated. And I believe in these properties and we're going to be stronger on the way out of this thing. And I just want to let you know that we're all good. And so that was something that really kind of took me back. And I think that that's something that into the next cycle is going to propel them even further, right? So you doing the right thing in the bad times is going to pay off in the good times. I really commend him for his decision there. And I think he was definitely trying to make a point and he did make a point. And, and those lenders are still to this day love to do business with. You know, I don't know if they would have the same sentiment and he had every right 
to go and request interest only or, you know, man, just moving from a 15 year to a 25 year organization for a few months, you know, give them some, and they were saying, they were already like hoping, not hoping, but they were already pretty much understanding that they're getting it from all angles. He's probably going to be one of them, but he decided not to. And I think that went a long way. And then the second, you know, kind of opposite type of, you know, encounter was we had, you know, COVID hit and, and we had a borrower that, um, you know, what we would do is we serviced a bunch of mortgages. What we would do is we would, we would come through and we'd say, all right, send us, a, send us your rent roll and let us know which tenants are either paying rent, not paying rent. Give us a status on each one of the tenants and maybe even just a conversation you had so we can get some color about what's going on right now. And so we had a sponsor come through and we did an office building loan with him. And he said, hey, I need whatever, six months interest only on my office. He said, hey, here's a rent roll, fill it out and let us know the status of each tenant. He says, all the tenants are paying rent. And, you know, it's, but everyone else is getting six months. I want six months. And I was like, Hey man, you know, that's probably, you know, not the right approach. Well, Chase, we've got, we need six months. Go get, you know, forcing my hand to request this from the lender. lender um, and who knows if that deteriorated the, you know, sentiment with that lender in particular, but there's kind of two ways to go about it. And, and I think that, you know, the way that my mall guy went about it was a pretty commendable way. It probably was the, you know, not the best on his pocketbook, but you know, I think he's going to be just fine for it. Yeah, you want clients, first of all, who are committed to their properties. I mean, there, there are, look, we're in a money-making business, right? So people are, you're, you're not buying an asset to not make money on, on it, right? That's the reality. Right. At the same time, there are certain clients who will do the least that they possibly can do, right? To fix a glaring problem. You know, the, you, know, you know, they used to call it like uh, putting uh, lipstick on a pig or something like that. You know, that's, mm-hmm. I, don't know I don't know if that's a Texas phrase. Or... Oh, that's a, oh, that's a phrase in, yeah, in yeah. Texas too. Yeah. I didn't hear it much in, um, you know, Hebrew school growing up. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but then there are others who are really, who, who have, are committed to the, the property and to the tenants. To Those people are also, you know, probably tend to be, more committed to their partners as far as like just doing what they can do, you know, to make a, a, because it's what they agree to. I mean, there's a lot to be said about, you know, obviously your reputation and the world of commercial real estate is, is small. I mean, it's, it's not this, it, it, it seems large at, at some perspective, but when you get down to it, there's so much crossover and people talk and these, there's these, large conferences like NMHC and MBA. And I mean, you know, pe- things happen and people talk pretty quickly and world, word travels quickly. And so unfortunately, all your good deeds don't really travel as quick as your bad deeds, right? Like so something happens where someone maybe gets in a dispute with a partnership and there's some controversy that rolls around the market very quickly. Um, yeah. So, you know, avoiding that at all costs, I think, is, is definitely an important key to being successful in, in the industry. And it kind of goes back to what we originally said. It's like, just be transparent, do the right thing, and everything, you know, should be okay. Work hard. Yeah. 
simple stuff. Yeah, you know, one one idea for you, you know, I think you know, the the client who you mentioned who you know stayed with you know who said even in the middle of COVID they were gonna you know keep on keep on paying. It would be um, if you went out to lunch or dinner with them and said, look, I, I realize that here's I really admired what you did. I'd love to do business with more people like that. You know, I mean, I'm committed to my business and I want to work with people who are committed to to, to theirs. Yeah, and is there anyone else that you think you know, that comes to mind that you, that kind of shares your your mindset that you think would make sense to meet? It might be an interesting conversation because first of all, people like being seen and recognized. You know, and I'm, and that was something that he did. That person did because they thought it was the right thing. But it, people like to be recognized and and to you know when you say, look, this is how I see you, and and they relate to that picture. It there's a resonance that they that that they feel. That might be a uh, interesting way to kind of expand the circle of, you know, committed clients. Right. Like-minded individuals. Like-minded yeah. individuals. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, people wanted, yeah, I mean, people want to do business with, you know, who they, who they like and who they trust and, uh, and, you know, who's a better endorser than, you know, the person that you like and trust. Right. Exactly. I'm curious, and this is for my, my own, I guess, market research. You know, one of the things that we're trying to figure out is, you know, how can you add value to a client today when maybe they're, you know, it's no longer that rates are at record lows and it makes sense for everyone to refinance and maybe they're not buying or selling. I don't know. I'm curious if what you're seeing lenders do, if you're seeing lenders do anything to add value to their clients or any ideas that you might have on, you know, what, what, what can a lender do to serve their client during this time if it's any kind of advisory work or valuation or share, you know, webinars or just sharing feedback on kind of like what you're talking about, about just what, what else, you know, we're seeing in the market. Any ideas come to mind for you? Yeah. I mean, something that, you know, and, you know, intentionally that I'm trying to do this year is provide, you know, the market with, uh, you know, a short snippet feedback of kind of where each lender type is in, in a particular week. And so, you know, as we are in the market, you know, kind of all times with different lender types, you know, hey, here's where the agencies are. Here's what agency product is going to get you the max proceeds and the, you know, the highest, you know, the highest leverage and the lowest rate. And, you know, and, and then going into kind of bridge lenders and saying, hey, here's where the bridge lenders are. The market is changed and here's how it's changed. And, and then going into, you know, kind of, you know, a few different classes of, of capital sources uh, there, you know, I think that, you know, that you know, giving away some of that information for free on the front end can maybe, you know, goodwill on the back end. And then like, as you have deals that come in, not every deal, unfortunately, isn't as easy as, hey, this is a 10 year family deal. A lot, you know, and some of them are, right? And, but like, you know, we support an investment sales team at Christian Wakefield that has, you know, we're seeing a lot of volume through them. And so what we get to see on a deal by deal basis is, all right, what's the in-place debt? Is it assumable? What's that debt service? Or what's that debt service payment compared to what I, if I do a new loan right now? And kind of doing a comparative analysis and saying, you know, not only like comparative analysis A, A versus B, but A versus B versus C versus maybe D, you know, and saying, hey, look, there are a lot of ways to skin this cat. And you can assume this loan if you want to, for sure. And you've got a low in place rate, but it's enterprising. 
you got two years left on it. And maybe, you know, you're about, you're probably whatever, $3 million lower in proceeds than what you could get today, and maybe a little higher rate, but you're going, you know, to have an interest only period on the front end. And here's what your cash flow looks like side by side. And although that might have looked like the right decision from a 50,000 foot view, when you get in the weeds, maybe a, a, a payoff of that loan does make sense. And at a certain, you know, at, at sometimes that answer is go with the assumption. You know, being able to show clients on paper what the math is and comparing it side by side in a simple way is, I think, a way to go, you know, to go to the next level for someone instead of saying, hey, I just want to pay them. Well, here's a 10 year quote, you know, well, there's a lot more options than that. A five year deal, you can, you know, do you want to really fix the loan right now for 10 years? Do you want to go a little shorter? Do you want to go with a, a maybe a floater? And, you know, but, but you know, a lot of people are talking about floaters right now, but floater spreads are pretty wide and the benchmark's really wide. So I don't know, maybe you look at a five year deal with some flexible prepay. Like there's a lot of, you know, ways to, look at it and i think the best thing is is you know talk to your client and really understand what their business is for the property how long are you going to be in, in here what do you plan on doing over the term of your home and matching the product that complements their strategy it comes back to actually listening right exactly yeah like you said, you're, you're seeing a ton of volume through, you know, Cushman's investment sales team, having lots of client, having lots of client meetings, still, you know, lots of pitches. You know, we're sitting here, you know, in the, towards the beginning of January, 2023, what are you seeing? You know, what's going on in, in the market? Are people starting to think about buying at today's levels? Are people starting to think about selling? Who's refinancing? Are there gaps? But, uh, let's start with buying and selling. You know, then we'll work on. We'll talk about you know debt situations that you're seeing. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'd say that on uh, you know from what I'm hearing, you know, over the first week of the year. So we do Monday morning calls with the Sunbelt team. So that's Texas to Tennessee, every market that we have in, in that you know kind of region. Every single person last week had mentioned that activity has been off the charts with regards to, you know, buyers looking to find deals to do, sellers trying, you know, as hard as they can to meet the market. And I think that with regards to, you know, buy, you know, actual transactions, the sellers are going to transact when there is a true market presentation. And what I mean by that is that if I'm an investment sales broker, for me to be successful and to have a seller that transacts, I can't show them one bid. I've got to show them five plus 10 bids, just like you should show them in the great times, right? And say, hey, look guys, I know you wanted X, but the top 10 buyers in the country bid within 4% of each other. This is the market. And, and, you know, I think that if you can, uh, from a buy-sell side, basically, you know, inform a seller on where the market is, then there's a higher likelihood that deal transacts. Mm -hmm. That once we receive, you know, some stabilization from a rate perspective, we're going to have a little, maybe, a, you know, this price discovery mode will become a little more clear. And we're going to be able to have a little more certainty in our underwriting, whether that's... Yeah. 
interest rates, whether that's in the exit cap rates, that stabilization is a key. And what I did see over the first week of the year is that treasuries are down. From Monday to Monday, they're down across the board, five, seven, and 10 year treasuries down like anywhere between 20 and 30 bits, or you know, pretty good decrease in the first part of the year. So what that means to me is that bond buyers are looking at the market and they're saying, hey, I'm looking five, seven, 10 years out. And I'm thinking that we're in a better spot than we are today. I do think that is providing me with a little more confidence looking into my crystal ball that I have, you know, really you take my thoughts with a grain of salt. But I mean, it's just like, I think that the bond buyers are at, at least saying that they're, they're seeing some sort of stabilization. That That's a good sign. You know, whenever you buy a property, you're taking a gamble. Submarket is going to perform on where interest rates will be at the time your loan matures, you know, or when you have to sell the asset, you know, if it's, if you, if you raise money in a fund, if rents are going to continue to increase, there's, there, you know, there, you're, there's things, there's risks that, that you're taking at times like this, where it feels like the future is unknown because like, you don't know where, you know, you see interest rates moving very, very quickly. I know, I know the, the risks that I'm usually getting into in a stable market. I know, I, you know, maybe I'll assume exit cap rates of either flat or maybe up a point, but if I see interest rates running up, Fed being aggressive, well, now that, that maybe is a scarier prospect, right? But as soon as the Fed slows down, I feel like that also calms people's minds a bit, you know, so even they're slowing, you know, just how much they were, the Fed was raising rates that maybe gives a little more peace of mind to people. I was listening to a podcast recently with JP Conklin, he owns Loan Boss and Pensford. And he said that when the Fed stopped raising rates, cap prices dropped by 50% within like a couple of months. What's the basis for the price of the cap? Well, one is the expectation of future interest rates where you think rates are going to be. But the second thing is volatility, right? And so if you're taking volatility out of the equation, all of a sudden, like the balloon deflates by, by half. That makes a lot of sense. So we may, you know, so hopefully we're starting to see that in, in commercial real estate market as well. On, on the debt side, there's a lot of thought that we're going to see a lot of gaps in refinancing the shortfalls, you know, that people who bought, you know, when rates were at two plus percent, or maybe they bought with a debt fund underwritten at pro forma NOIs that they're going to, when they hit low maturity, there's going to be a shortfall. Are you seeing any of that yet or on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, we are seeing that. Um, we're, we, I mean, even if it doesn't matter if you hit your business plan perfectly on the head, and if you didn't dial in your interest rate, I mean, we look at SOFR and over the past 12 months, it's increased to 400 basis points. So if you were underwriting, you know, you, you went from 0.04% to 4%. <laughs> Like in quick. And so no one really underwrote that. And so I think that you can even hit your business plan perfectly on, you know, perfectly on point and still be in a tough situation. And so what we're seeing, the big trend that we're seeing there is that you've got, like I said earlier in the podcast, was LP equities tightened up right now. They're pencils, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part, institutional equity is still pencils down. I think we're going to have way better insight you know, after kind of NBA in February, maybe after NMHC at the end of January, 
But right now, it seems like they still are in kind of wait and see mode. I kind of look at that and, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, if I'm a JV, LP, whatever, you know, equity provider, and I say, I was happy getting 15 plus percent of my money at, in kind of the, when things were great and I was competing at that level. And then now I'm saying, well, preferred equity and gap capital costs 14, 15%. And I can be higher up in the stack and I don't have to be at this first loss for this kind of, I guess, not first loss, but almost first loss position. And we're seeing this in real time, the transition from JV equity to preferred equity. And saying, look, instead of looking and going and trying to find new deals that work today, I'm going to go find old deals that don't work today. And I'm going to provide the gap count. And so we are seeing that trend. So that's on the capital provider side, right? They're saying that, yeah, I'm going to switch from LP to PREF. Are you seeing loan maturities that are coming up short or do you think it's still early? I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of those deals were done. I mean, what we were seeing was they would do these uh, three plus one plus one. If you did one of those loans two years ago, you're still a year out even from initial you know, maturity and you may have two years of extensions. So I don't know if it's that, that stuff is actually hitting yet or if it's still disbelief. Exactly. Everything was pretty much done on a three-year initial term, maybe a two-year initial term with two one-year extensions. Those one-year extensions, though, you got to remember that they have requirements that the property, you know, operating has, you know, the operations at the property need to hit a certain level to achieve that one-year extension. Good thing is, is that I think most of the lenders in, you know, that did these bridge loans don't want to be property owners. They will extend and pretend and, and, and try to weather the storm with the sponsor group as long as you've got a good sponsor that's doing the right thing that is you know in operations or on par with what you present initially i think that you're probably going to be good and I'll, they'll allow you that extension and i'm not seeing right now just a flood of distress deals i'm seeing a flood of operators and equity providers that are on the sidelines looking for blood in the water and it's just really not there right now. I don't know if that you know changes six months from now or, or what, but you know, right now we are seeing a, a flood of it. I mean maybe you know a you know a trickle hit here and there, but not not the you know they open the floodgates yet. Yeah and we'll see what happens. You know, I'm trying to think back to like 0809 and there you had a serious crunch very quickly and why that was. But there, I feel like you had banks really pull out liquidity at, at all levels, right? So like, you know, we as a lender, we're having our lines pulled, right? And so if you're having your lines pulled, now you can't extend your loan to your client because your debt source is wants right. their money back. It's a domino you know, effect. It's a domino effect, right? So, you know, the, I mean, the repo market, right? The overnight lending market evaporated in, you know, in 08, 09, right? So is that lead domino that affects everything else? Most loans are doing pretty well. I mean, if you, if you have your low rate, you know, I mean, look, if you had a floating rate and, and, it, and, it, and it ran up, okay, so maybe you have some challenges, but maybe it was IL, maybe there was some room there. You've got a cap. You've got a cap, oh, right, you have a cap also so like that that kicked in you have, you have caps i also i mean I, I get calls from people who are interested in they want to buy you know their distressed debt buyers like you know we want to buy your distressed loans you know it's like all right easy there cowboy we're okay yeah yeah it's not i don't have just a ton of distressed loans that i'm ready to sell for pennies on the dollar 
Yeah. It's just not, yeah, it's just not there. Exactly. Right. Plus, I feel like one of the lessons that I think people are more sensitive to the relationship these days, you know, and you can't like to sell, you know, you have a, a relationship with a client and they trust you to make a loan. You can't just sell the loan out from under them. Right. Yeah. You know, to a, a piranha, you know, if that doesn't feel, doesn't feel exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So just in our last few minutes, let's say if you went back and spoke to your younger Chase Johnson, and when you were first starting out, any advice you would give your younger self, words of encouragement or advice, you know, anything, what, what would you, what would you tell you know, younger version of yourself? Gosh, I don't know. I, I would just, you know, make sure to kind of hammer it home. It's like, look, man, do like work hard. It's not, you know, nothing, nothing is easy and no, nothing worth anything is, is easy. And, you know, if it was and everyone would be doing it, then we, it wouldn't be worth anything. Don't be afraid to work hard and, you know, work hard and do the right thing. That's what advice I'd give. I think that that's very true. I've also seen, to be fair, I've seen a lot of people work very hard and still fail because whatever, it just wasn't the right fit for, for them. Right. Was, was there a moment when you realized, oh yeah, this is something I could do? Yeah. I mean, early on, like I was, a, you know, I got out of school. I was an analyst uh, for that small boutique mortgage company. And, you know, I was making, you know, very entry level type of salary. But, you know, you start looking around and you start saying, oh, man, he just made X on that one deal or whatever. Like you, you start looking and you can kind of see the light. And, um, and so that was soul focus, right? It was, OK, I want to be how quick can I get there? That's what gets me up. I mean, what gets me up every day is that no, deal, no two deals are the same. You are directly incentivized by your production. And you can, and you've got the freedom to kind of do what you want within the certain range. And, you know, there's no other business that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking for another business, but I, I'm just saying I haven't found anything that matches what commercial mortgage banking can provide someone with regards to flexibility, income, and, and just general, you know, stimulation of your brain. Yeah. Uh, allowing you not to just feel like you're stuck in this monotonous task of, you know, hitting the same five keys every day, um, you know, so it, it's just, it's, it's really been great. And I feel lucky to be, you know, to have found it such a, you know, as such an early part of my career. I mean, there's a lot of people that had, you know, worked in, you know, a, a different industry for 10, 15 years before they found uh, what, what they feel like is, you know, the right fit. I, I like hanging out with technology people in, in tech because, you know, you talk to them and, and, they have this this feeling that everything is possible, right? It's like, yeah, oh, you want to build that? Sure, we can do that. You want to do that? Sure, everything is possible. I find that brokers also, you know, have that mindset of like, you know, even even when times there's all there's always the, the optimism of possibility. It, only, it yeah. only takes one lender. It only takes that's brilliant. It only, <laughs> it only takes one, one one lender. Thank you for for coming on, and and I love the. Yeah, the po the positivity and, and optimism. I think it's also it's important for people to, especially in times like these, to surround yourself with optimistic people, right? Because that has a big impact. You know, so being on a team with others who can energize you, and even in your personal social life, just to surround yourself with positivity. You know, so thank you, Chase, for being being a source of of, of sunshine. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on today. And um, uh, I look forward to seeing you again.
Awesome. Thank you, Chase. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye.